You are on Max's Island, a podcast by Meet Max Power. On Max's Island podcast, you'll hear the lived experiences of people who choose to live life a little differently. It might be a story of when they took time out and dared to do something crazy. Perhaps they made a decision to leave it all behind and follow their dreams. Or maybe they just stopped listening to what other people thought and did what was right for them. This experience becomes a story that is part of them and one that you need to hear. So, now that you're on Max's Island, listen to the wisdom in these stories and you too will be inspired to do what you have always wanted to do. Today on Max's Island, I'm with Mark Gaddy. I've known Mark since 1979, when we were fresh-faced uni students in our first year at UWA. Welcome to Max's Island. Thanks, Tony. Nice to be here with you. Mark, for all our guests on Max's Island, this is an opportunity to tell our listeners that time in your life where things might have changed for you, where you might have taken an opportunity or whether you did something different or did something for yourself something that might have changed your career or just changed your life? Well, it probably happened for me in 1997. I was, 30, about 30, I was 37 at the time. I was a state manager for a national services, property services company. And I could have probably stayed working for that business for a long time if I wanted to. But I'd been having some thoughts about maybe I could do something different and by chance, my wife mentioned it to a friend of hers that I was thinking of making a move into something different. And uh, that friend passed it on to her husband and he was running a national, uh, national AXS listed company. And he approached me with regards to doing some work, but not for the listed company, but rather for his, uh, for his own private business interest. And I pretty much made the decision fairly quickly to resign my job take a role working with this this gentleman in his business interests with a view to finding new business opportunities. And that's something that I did for nearly two years. I learned a heck of a lot, but I concluded during the process that the, the nature of what we were doing uh, provided a fairly lumpy income stream. I was having to put some of my own money into some of the projects and I just found with three children under the age of 10 that it was going to be pretty hard going forward that way for a long time. So I gave it some further thought and I came to the conclusion that I wanted to be in business for myself and that I'd look to purchase my own business. And I embarked upon a um, somewhat haphazard journey to start with because I had a couple of businesses lined up and they, and they sold and they both fell over, the sales fell over at the last minute for one reason or another. So can I just interrupt there? That's really interesting because going into going out of the corporate world into a job where you said the you know the income was a bit lumpy, you had your, your young family, 
yet you then made the decision to jump in boots and all and do it for yourself. That must have taken a fair bit of uh, guts and a fair bit of um, planning to do that. I suppose it does, but um, at some stage you, I sort of thought that I was still young enough to give it a go and if it didn't work out, I could go back to corporate life in some shape or form. Um, that's what my fallback position was. But I was convinced that I could find something I thought that was suitable and I basically did at the start of end of 2000 I found a business has been on the market for probably 12 months has been going for over 20 years successfully the vendor was a very honest and uh, straightforward guy it was a business in the asphalt supply and lay business um, and basically pretty quickly reached an agreement for me to take over the business and I basically started in early 2001 I had no direct industry experience um, I had how did you find that did was was that daunting for you or you saw it just simply as a vehicle to build a business around um, probably not as complicated as that Tony I just simply saw it as I saw it as a contracting business that you basically went and picked up materials from an asphalt plant you had machines and guys that you laid it with so I just sort of exercised contracting time and materials how, how much Times required to get the job done, what quantity materials do you need? So, and we weren't dealing with, I suppose, um, life and death matters. We were just laying asphaltic surfaces on ground. So if something went wrong, you basically ripped it up. And, but it, you know, you weren't, it wasn't sort of a life and death sort of industry. So I thought, well, the worst that can go wrong is you can go broke. And I suppose that was my approach to start with. That uh, when I got hold of the business, the, I suppose the you have that moment when you're about to start and you think, goodness gracious, what if those five or six main customers all of a sudden walk out the door in the first month or two months, that's, that's the business over. But I rationalised it in my mind that if I maintain the same level of service and the same pricing, there should be no reason for them to change. So I made an effort very early on to establish very good relationships with those customers. And one thing about that industry where we were, we were sort of mid-tier players, was that a lot of the people I dealt with uh, were the owners of their own businesses. They were similarly small-sized businesses. So it's very, I found it a lot easier dealing with owners rather than employees because owners, I found, tend to look at things differently to what employees do. And in many respects, we were more like partners on the job. We They did the preparation and we came and did the finishing work. So I developed a lot of long-term relationships uh, with the people that were our customers. So that was obviously a reflection of the relationship the previous owner had as well and that it made sense then to follow that process. Yes, but what I've found is that fairly quickly the, the previous owner had pretty much uh, adopted the business to suit his lifestyle and he had a hobby farm up north and he was taking off on Fridays and coming back Mondays and he really had sort of wound the business back so that it just suited what he wanted to do. And the opportunity became really apparent quite quickly by just being there five days a week and taking more phone calls and getting out and meeting more people that the business just started to expand and there was no sort of, um, I suppose, magic in what it was. It was just getting yourself in front of people. And I'm a pretty particular person about quality, so I wanted to make sure that we did the job properly. And in the end, over I had that business for 13 years, that we had a very simple formula, and that was we turned up on time, 
we pretty much gave the customer what they wanted in terms of quantities and we did the job properly and we prided ourselves on not having to come back to fix up you know, poor workmanship. Did you take over any of his key personnel? Uh, yeah, we took over. I took over all the staff, which weren't many to start with, and there were no problems with the handover. I mean, the reality is, and the same happened when we sold the business ultimately, was that the key concern of the staff is, have I still got a job? And that's, it's a pretty basic consideration, but it, when you sit and think of it about from an employee's point of view and there's a change of ownership, that's really what they're concerned about, where do I fit in with the new owner? So how many of those guys stayed for, for a period of time? Well, one of them uh, stayed with me for the whole 13 years. Uh, others stayed for four and five years. Uh, another one, of, we had a, a, a truck driver that was a subcontractor. He worked for the whole 13 years and continued with the, with the new owners, as did a number of the other staff. So uh, in our industry, there was a high turnover of staff. I generally had a fairly... A good length of service from a lot of the key people that work for me and I, I suppose the reason for that was that um, we were mid-size we didn't do shift work night shift we didn't do a lot of country work and we didn't work a lot of weekends and a lot of the bigger companies had their crews working six and seven days a week week in week out and then they'd ship them off the country for two and three or four weeks at a time uh, and what I saw was that those guys got burnt out very quickly. It affected the quality of the workmanship. It affected relationship between employees. They were at each other's throats at different times. And most importantly, it had a terribly detrimental effect on their personal relationships with their partners and their children. So the fact that we pretty much concentrated on working Monday to Friday, with a little bit of country work and the odd weekend work, I managed to secure a good team of guys that accepted that's what they wanted to do, that's how they wanted to work, and it suited them. So what sort of customers did you get, and did you expand the business into what markets to be able to deal with that nine-to-five arrangement? Well, it wasn't quite nine-to-five, Tony. Yeah, well, <laughs> five days a week. We started. We used to start at six o'clock in the morning, and, and there, was, there was no set finishing time because it's a hot product that's got to be laid, so you basically had to finish the job. If you didn't finish it, you finished at a certain stage and you came back the next day to finish it off. Uh, and given the fact that we weren't working, working weekends religiously, the guys, they'd, they'd want to get their 50 hours in a week to make it, worth, make it worthwhile for themselves. And the other thing that uh, started to happen was that we were doing more and more work for the government through the school system and the government uh, services, property services and we started travelling out to the wheat belt areas uh, during school holidays, resurfacing tennis courts and quadrangles at schools. And uh, we did a number of trips over five or six years out there, up to a week at a time. And it was really good in terms of getting around to see the countryside. It was fantastic for the, the employees and the crew because for them it was a break from their normal routine. And we'd often stay at the local pub or we'd stay in the railman's quarters. We'd take the barbecue up with us and we, yeah, we did, it, it was just a lot of social fun. So we, we, we'd work well together and we'd socialise together. And you know, everyone really looked forward to the trips and um, did that for a while. But in the meantime, what I'd also realised was that 
uh, that we were capable of offering more services than just supplying and laying the asphalt surface on the finished job. And the government started to change and they wanted people to do more and more of the work scope and have less and less contractors. So the tendering format started to change and uh, other clients also adopting the same approach. So we became uh, more of a principal contracting company and if someone wanted a tennis court built, well, we'd undertake all the work. We'd do all the drainage, all the site works, the base work. We'd lay the asphalt ourselves. We'd have acrylic surfaces put on. I'd supply tennis nets and, and fencing and lighting if you wanted. But I, I, we would subcontract out everything except what we did ourselves. And the beauty of that was that I probably had 15 to 20 clients that were doing earthworks and drainage and of those clients there were two or three that I considered to be good operators and I'd basically just subcontract them to do their bit and uh, we'd go and do the finishing work and that really did expand the business and expanded our network of clients. Do you think your background in corporate world handling multiple tasks handling you know bigger budgets allowed you to be able to grow into that contracting space where perhaps uh, other operators may have struggled with just the sheer economics and the sheer business acumen to be able to put it all together uh without a doubt tony and the reason for that is that i actually was um, trained in commercial contracts uh, contract administration leases tendering so really the business side of running the business was, was the easy part. It was the, let's call it the technical side, which was the difficult part or the more difficult part. And when I first started, I actually worked on the crew. I, I got on the gear and I got the shovel in my hand and I did my bit and I did that on and off for quite some time. And um, it taught me basically how long a job should take, how it should be done. So it was immensely helpful in tendering and quoting work. And in that business, you pretty much lost or you made or lost your money at the time you did your quote because if you got it wrong, you couldn't go back to the client. And if you estimated it properly, well, you made the margins you were hoping to achieve. So, so what would send a job off the rails where you might not have got it right? Sometimes weather because... If it rains too much, you can't lay the product. So you've been down to the asphalt plant. You've sent your trucks down there. They've loaded it on. It's 165 degrees Celsius. You go to the job. You might sit there for two or three hours. If you lose the day, the only option is to go to the rubbish tip or take it back to the plant and tip it off. So you had to be very careful about the weather. But I became a pretty good predictor of the weather. And I looked at the radar regularly. Well, gotta to, gotta to tell our listeners, you're a golfer, so us golfers, we're all good weather weathermen at heart. Well, um, I, anticipating. I still, I still use those skills today, Tony. When I look at the weather forecast and the radar, and everyone says to me, "Oh, we're not playing golf today. We're going to get wet." And I say, "Oh, no, we're not. <laughs> we're not as wet as you think we are." Yes. So, Mark, what was one of the more unusual jobs that you did? Well, go back right to the very start. When I purchased the business, a number of people told me, including my accountant, that you don't pay a lot of money, goodwill, for contracting businesses. And um, there's a little element of goodwill, but you basically, in contracting businesses, you've got to make your money year in, year out. And at the end, if you can get plant and equipment value a little bit for goodwill, you've done pretty well. So I did remember that. And 
I probably had the business for a couple of months and a gentleman phoned up and said that, uh, that the company had built a driveway for him in Pickering Brook in the hills. And I said, no, that wouldn't, that's not myself, that's the previous owner, I'm the new owner. And he goes, oh, well, he said, that's fine, I was very happy with the work that's done. He said, I've got a uh, horse stud up at Muchet and I want some roadways done, it's paved, would you come and have a look? And I said, well, certainly. And he said, have you, got a, have you got any young girls? I said, yeah, I've got a young daughter, two young daughters. And he said, are they interested in horses? And I go, well, one particularly is. He says, well, come up on Sunday and she can have a look because there's a lot of foals on the property at the moment. So we drove up there on the Sunday afternoon. And I said, right, what do you want to be done? And he says, look, jump in the car and I'll show you. So we jumped in his car and he put the trip meter on. And we started driving around these internal roads of this property. And after a while, he stopped and he said, right, that's what I want done. And I looked down, it was 3.3 kilometres of internal roads to be paved at three metres wide. That's nearly 10,000 square metres of asphalt. And he said to me, he said, don't worry about the preparation. He said, I've got a local contractor. I have a gravel pit at the back of the property. He'll prepare everything. I just want you to turn up and lay the road at three metres wide as we've just driven. So I went home that night, I worked the price out, I faxed it off him, faxed it to him in those days, and he phoned the next morning and said, you've got the job. So I just couldn't believe it, that you know, that was a job, was probably the largest job the company had done for, for many, many years. And it just dropped in my lap really because of the, the goodwill and the good work of the previous owner. And um, I think people underestimate the power of goodwill in businesses that have been operating for a long time successfully. There is some goodwill component. And um, when I sold the business in 2013, um, likewise, the new owners received calls from previous clients seeking the company to do another job for them. So that's, it, it may not seem important at the time, but uh, a happy client or a satisfied client does remember and they will pass the word of mouth on to friends and colleagues and occasionally you get the chance to come back they can't have the chance to come back to you and use your services again so on max's island i get to ask some really dumb questions or some interesting questions depends how they are so we drive around the suburbs these days and you see some roads that are a burgundy color not black why don't they do all roads like that why do they do them black and how much more expensive is it to do a, a red or burgundy-type road? Uh, burgundy. I don't call it burgundy. Whatever the colour is. I haven't called it burgundy before. It's actually called uh, gravel paved with red oxide, Tony. Okay. There you go. See, I'm not technical. And, <laughs> and the difference is that the, um, your normal black asphalt has a, a granite, a blue granite stone in it, and the gravel pave is a a more roundish laterite gravel stone. It still has the black bitumen, but they add a red oxide and enough of it to turn it from black to red. And it is not used predominantly on hard-wearing surfaces because the gravel is not as strong as what the granite is. And it's the granite which is the wearing course the bitumen and the filler are just the binders that hold it together. So the stone is not as durable, and because it's smoother, it, it, it's, um, it's not as um, skid-resistant. 
So, well done. You've answered a question and made me look really silly. So, <laughs> <laughs> didn't mean to. So, Mark, you had the business for 13 years. Do you think that was long enough? Could you have gone a bit more? Or in hindsight, that was just really good timing? And was it a lifestyle thing or an economic reason that you sold? In the end, it was lifestyle, Tony. And what was happening as the business got busier and busier, I had made the decision that I I wanted to one run crew properly. I didn't have a lot of overheads with extra staff. I was doing a lot of the work myself. Why restricted to one crew? Well... I had a number of opportunities and people approached me about employing a second crew, starting a second crew, promising more work. But I had realised along the way that after speaking to some other people in the industry that necessarily two, time, two, two crews didn't produce two times the amount of work or two times the amount of turnover. In fact, one of the guys that I probably respected the most in the industry at another competitor company, he told me straight out that the best he could ever do with a second crew was only a 50% increase in his turnover and it wasn't worth the hassle. And you need a lot of work to keep one crew going, let alone two crews. And I realised that the second crew, whilst it, it was good for turnover, it wasn't necessarily going to be great for profitability. And good, skilled workers were always hard to find for the whole time I was involved in that industry. And I didn't fancy the prospect of having to find a second crew of less skilled workers than what I had, which would have meant probably less jobs being completed satisfactorily. And I just decided to have one crew, look after them. Everyone was to work, work them efficiently and therefore I wouldn't need another level of supervision, etc. But it also became apparent probably around 2010-2011 that the requirements for occupational health and safety to get onto a job site and to do work, we're getting more and more complex and we basically didn't work union sites. I wasn't interested in going onto union sites, it was just too complicated. Uh, but nevertheless, there was more documentation to be done, more procedure, and I could see the future was only heading one way, that I was gonna to need to engage someone to work for me to just to do the paperwork to get onto the jobs. And I, and I could see what was happening at the bigger national companies and the amount of time that they, they actually spent with their guys being unproductive while someone walked around with a checklist and checked things off. And I could see it was, it was coming. So that sort of was what first got me thinking about it. And then eventually it was my wife, Heather, that said to me one day that, you know, you get up at quarter past four in the morning, you go to work, you come home, uh, the kids are growing up, they're all educated. How much longer are you going to do this for? And I thought about it a little bit and I thought, well, gee, you know, I probably don't need to keep doing it uh, at this pace. But I was very reluctant to become, um, I suppose, not fully involved. I was the sort of person that I'm either all in or all out. And I, I couldn't be halfway in between. And I decided that, therefore, if I was going to go out, I'd have to sell the business rather than maybe step down or partially retire. So the decision was made, let's try and sell the business. And I thought, geez, this may not be easy. But what I did do was I probably spent about nine months going out to work on the weekend, preparing the documentation. So when I gave it to the agent, that nearly everything was there. And that's what I did. I basically wrote 
the sale document for them, minus a few bits and pieces that they wanted added or removed. But I was confident that whoever looked at that business would have enough information to make an informed decision. And um, I was pleasantly surprised that the second people looked at the business proceeded to buy the business and um, it was sold in very quick time. And I must say, I was particularly pleased with the people that did purchase the business. When you've sold a business that had been going at that stage, 24 years for the first owner, Dave, 13 years for myself, uh, for us it was always about hoping that people who took the business over would do a better job than what you did. And that's what's happened. The business has continued to grow. Uh, they've now been there for nearly seven years and we have a wonderful relationship with the owners, uh, just as I still have a very strong relationship with the gentleman I purchased the business off. And in fact, when the business celebrated its 40th year a few years ago, all three owners were present at a little celebration. And I think that says a lot about small business and, uh, and I think it uh, speaks heaps of the of the previous owner and his values. And I like to think that some of my values have assisted new owners to grow that business and to achieve their objectives. I think that's really apt to, to the fact that the three of you were at an event celebrating the business uh, because it wasn't just your personalities that ran the business, but as you said, it was the values that had been established and then you carried on and became the values of the business. And those that worked for it understood that and were able to execute it and, and were able to um, you know, do the right thing by the customers. And, and that's another thing that I'm sure um, would have been the, a key thing for the success of the business was that continuity of customers simply because of the values and the way the business was run. Well, it is, Tony, some of your customers do become some of your close friends and all you want to make sure is the person taking over the business can continue to provide the service, but you, you want to see them succeed because you've put a lot of hard work into making that business what it is and you'd hate to see it just disappear in the sake of 12 months or 18 months because the person that has bought the business is the wrong fit for the business. But that was not the case. Certainly when I took over and certainly when the new people have taken over, it wasn't the case either, as, as time has proven. Mark, it's been a really interesting story. It's one that we don't normally have on Max's Island. People that have gone into business for themselves, achieved what they wanted to do and successfully got out and, and you know have pivoted their, their business career. But I want to finish with one last question. I know that since you've sold the business and um, got back into your golf more seriously, and now you've really jumped in, you talked about you're either in or you're not in, I believe you're a captain of a golf club at the moment. How is that running a golf club as a volunteer compared to running your own business? Well, it's a little bit different, Tony, obviously. Um, we have a very good staff down at my golf club. Um, I don't think my wife's necessarily as keen about the captaincy, but nevertheless, I was prepared to serve in some capacity at my golf club. Uh, I didn't think it would be quite as soon, uh, but the opportunity came up to be captain, and my main interest is golf, and that's what the captains of golf club are involved with, is the running of the golf side of things. So I've done two years as vice captain. I've just started as captain, and I'll do my two years as captain, and I'll give it my best shot, and when I've finished... That, I will happily step down from my involvement at the golf club and uh, Heather and I hope to resume our interest in travel overseas. 
Yeah, well, you know, we're in those difficult times where that's a bit of a pipe dream at the moment, but um, let's hope that within the two years that we will be travelling overseas. Mark, thanks very much for being on Max's Island. It's always really great to listen to success stories. People have made a real success out of that pivoting decision. So thanks very much for being on Max's Island. Tony, it's very nice of you to ask me. I thoroughly enjoyed the experience. Every sense was engaged, his mind was as clear as the sky. 